Section 48 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 67 The Literature of the Reign, Second Survey, Part 2. Professor Tyndall, another great teacher in the same school, has, like Mr. Huxley, the gift of literary expression informed perhaps by more of the imaginative and the poetic mr tyndall has done perhaps more practical work in science than mr huxley he has written more he has sometimes written more eloquently but there is a certain coarseness of materialism about mr tyndall's views with regard to man and nature there is a vehement aggressiveness in him which must interfere with the clearness of his views he has occasionally assailed the orthodox with the polemical intemperance of a field preacher he has more than once been carried clear away from his purpose by the unsparing vigour of his controversial style he is sometimes one of the most impatient of sages the most intolerant of philosophers his temper as a controversialist may have tended sometimes to weaken his scientific authority but of course this only happens where the subject engrossing professor tyndall's attention is one of that class which have in all ages proved too exciting now and then for the cool judgment even of philosophers mr tyndall has made noble contributions to scientific literature which concern in no wise the tremendous questions put by mr carlyle with such solemnity and such emotion whence and o oh heavens whither mr herbert spencer may be said to have taken the sphere of the naturalist and the spheres of the metaphysician and the psychologist and drawn a circle round embracing and enfolding them all and adopting them as his province if mr darwin's attempt to map out the process by which vegetable and animal life are gradually constructed was an ambitious effort the task which mr herbert spencer undertook was of still more vast and venturous scope mr spencer is the author of a series of connected philosophical works intended to reduce to harmonious and scientific order the principles of biology psychology sociology and morality he has applied universally and carried out in systematic detail the doctrine of evolution or development in eighteen fifty five appeared his principles of psychology an attempt to analyze the relations between the order of the worlds of matter and of mind the central and governing idea of this work is that the universal law of intelligence flows directly from the cooperation of mind and nature in the creation of our ideas as there is a persistency in the order of events in nature so will there be a persistency in the connection between the corresponding states of consciousness the succession or coexistence of external phenomena produces a like succession in our mental perceptions and when any two psychical states often occur together there is at length established an internal tendency for those states always to recur in the same order starting from the law which has been thus described in words that are not ours mr spencer traces the growth of human intelligence from the lower phenomena of reflex action and instinct and then shows 
how our unconscious life merges in a succession of conscious phenomena and lastly he endeavours to carry us upwards from the origin of memory to the highest exercise of reason and the scientific development of the moral feelings in other words mr spencer endeavours to lay down the principles of development for the whole world of matter of mind and of morals mr spencer has written essays on education on the government of states and on other subjects which however scarcely seem to be marked by the precision of thought which distinguishes him as a psychological writer his views of education and of civic government seem occasionally to degenerate almost to the degree of crotchets his style is not fascinating it is clear strong and simple but it has little literary beauty and borrows little from illustration of any kind mr spencer himself utterly undervalues what he regards as superfluous words attractiveness of style is part of the instrumentality by which a great writer or speaker accomplishes his ends if a man would convince he must not disdain the arts by which people can be induced to listen much of mr spencer's greatest work had long been little better than a calling aloud to solitude for the lack of the attractiveness of style which he despises but which plato or aristotle would not have despised mr spencer however rather prides himself on not caring much about the greeks and their literature a great thinker he undoubtedly is one of the greatest thinkers of modern time perhaps a man to be classed among the few great and original philosophers of all time it is only of late years that his fame has begun to spread among his countrymen gradually it has become known to the english public in general that there was among them a great lonely thinker surveying the problems of mind and matter as from some high serene watch-tower his works were well known among reading people in the united states long before they had ceased to be the exclusive property of a very select few in england of late he has come to be in a certain sense the fashion in this country among people who desire to be thought clever it is not any part of our purpose to raise the question whether less honour is done to a great writer by neglecting him altogether or by adopting him as one of the authors whom it is conventionally proper to have read and with whom therefore everybody is bound to affect an acquaintance it certainly was not for that that mr spencer toiled his way over the rugged unpitying alpine heights of thought ut pueris we may add puelisque placeat et declamatio fiat the name of professor max muller is now by common consent enrolled with the names of famous englishmen max muller has adopted england as his home and england has quietly annexed his reputation he has approached the history of man's development by the study of man's speech he has opened a new and a most important road for the student in his hands philology ceases to be a dry science of words and becomes quickened into a living teacher of history max muller has contributed to various departments of thought and has proved himself a charming writer who can invest even the least attractive subject with an absorbing interest 
metaphysical and psychological science have lately lost a pupil of marvellous versatility in george henry lewis no literary man in our time did so many different things and did them so well as mr lewis he wrote novels he made some of the most successful adaptations from the french theatre known to our stage he was an accomplished literary and dramatic critic he translated spinoza he wrote the lives of goethe and robespierre he produced a history of philosophy in which he had something of his own to say about every great philosopher from thales down to schelling and Kant. he was the author of all manner of physiological essays his problems of life and mind and his physical basis of mind were really contributions of permanent value to the studies with which they so boldly dealt it is not perhaps unworthy of notice that mr lewis was even a remarkably good amateur actor it seemed as if he must be able to do everything well to which it pleased him to put his hand his peculiar merit was not however that he could write clever books on a great variety of subjects london has many hack writers who could go to work at any publisher's order and produce successively an epic poem a novel a treatise on the philosophy of the conditioned a handbook of astronomy a farce a life of julius caesar an account of african explorations and a volume of sermons but none of these productions would have one gleam of native and genuine vitality about it the moment it had served its purpose in the literary market it would go dead down to the dead lewis's works are of quite a different style they have positive merit and value of their own and they live it was a characteristically audacious thing to attempt to cram the history of philosophy into a couple of medium-sized volumes polishing off each philosopher in a few pages draining him plucking out the heart of his mystery in his system and stowing him away in the glass jar designed to exhibit him to an edified class of students but it must be admitted that the history of philosophy is a genuine and a valuable study although the author not then in the calmer maturity of his powers crumples up the whole science of metaphysics sweeps away transcendental philosophy and demolishes a priori reasoning in a manner which strongly reminds one of arthur pendennis upsetting in a dashing criticism and on the faith of an hour's reading in an encyclopedia some great scientific theory of which he had never heard before and the development of which had been the life's labour of a sage the period which we are surveying was especially rich in historical studies it was prolific not only in historians and histories but even in new ways of studying history the crimean war was still going on when mr froude's history of england from the fall of wolsey to the death of elizabeth began to make its appearance and the public soon became alive to the fact that a man of great and original power had come into literature the first volume of mr buckle's history of civilization was published in eighteen fifty seven mr freeman literally disentombed a great part of the early history of england cleared it of the accumulated dust of traditional error and ignorance and for the first time showed it to us as it must have presented itself to the eyes of those who helped to make it mr kinglake began the story of the crimean war 
Mr. Lecky occupied himself with the history of rationalism in Europe, the history of European morals from Augustus to Charlemagne, and more lately with the great days of the 18th century. Canon Stubbs made the constitutional history of England his province, and Mr. Green undertook to compress the whole sequence of English history into a sort of literary outline map in which events stood clearly out in the just perspective and proportions of their real importance. Of the men we have named, it would not be unreasonable to say that Mr. Froude and Mr. Kinglake belonged to the Romantic school of historian, Mr. Buckle and Mr. Lecky to the philosophic, Mr. Freeman, Canon Stubbs, and Mr. Green to the practical and the real. To show events and people as they were is the clear aim of this latter school. To picture them dramatically and vividly would seem to be the ambition of Mr. Froude and Mr. Kinglake. To show that they have a system and a sequence and are evidence of great natural laws is the object of men like Mr. Buckle and Mr. Lecky. Mr. Froude is probably the most popular historian since Macaulay, although his popularity is far indeed from that of Macaulay. He is widely read, where Mr. Freeman would seem intolerably learned and pedantic, and Mr. Lecky too philosophic to be lively. His books have been the subject of the keenest controversy. His picture of Henry VIII set all the world wondering. It set an example and became a precedent. It founded a new school in history and biography, what we may call the paradoxical school the school which sets itself to discover that some great man had all the qualities for which the world had never before given him credit and none of those which it had always been content to recognize as his undoubted possession the virtues of the misprized tiberius the purity and meekness of lucrezia borgia the disinterestedness and forbearance of charles of burgundy these and other such historical discoveries naturally followed Mr. Froude's illustration of the domestic virtues, the exalted chastity, and the merciful disposition of Henry VIII. Mr. Froude has, however, qualities which raise him high above the level of the ordinary paradoxical historian. He has a genuine creative power. We may refuse to believe that his Henry VIII is the Henry VIII of history, but we cannot deny that Mr. Froude makes us see Henry as vividly as if he stood in life before us. A dangerous gift for a historian, but it helps to make a great literary man. Mr. Froude may claim to be regarded as a great literary man, measured by the standard of our time. He has imagination. He has that sympathetic and dramatic instinct which enables a man to enter into the emotions and motives the likings and dislikings of people of a past age. His style is penetrating and thrilling. His language often rises to the dignity of poetic eloquence. The figures he conjures up are always the resemblances of real men and women. They are never waxwork, or lay figures, or skeletons clothed in words, or purple rags of description stuffed out with straw into an awkward likeness of the human form. The one distinct impression we carry away from Mr. Froude's history is that of the living reality of his figures. In Marlowe's Faustus, the doctor conjures up for the amusement of the emperor a procession of beautiful and stately shadows to represent the great ones of the past. 
when the apparitions of alexander the great and his favourite pass by the emperor can hardly restrain himself from rushing to clasp the hero in his arms and has to be reminded by the wizard that these are but shadows not substantial even then the emperor can hardly get over his impression of their reality for he cries i have heard it said that this fair lady whilst she lived on earth had on her neck a little wart or mole and lo there is the mark on the neck of the beautiful form which floats across his field of vision mr froude's shadows are like this so deceptive so seemingly vital and real with the beauty and the blot alike conspicuous with the pride and passion of the hero and the heroine's white neck and the wart on it mr froude's whole soul in fact is in the human beings whom he meets as he unfolds his narrative he is a romantic or heroic portrait painter he has painted some pictures which may almost compare with those of titian their glances follow and haunt one like the wonderful eyes of cesare borgia or the soul-piercing resignation of that face on guido's canvas once believed to be that of beatrice cenci but mr froude wants the one indispensable quality of the true historian accuracy he wants altogether the cold patient stern quality which clings to facts the scientific faculty his narrative never stands out in that dry light which bacon so commends the light of undistorted and clear truth the temptations to a man with the gift of heroic portrait painting are too great for mr froude his genius carries him away and becomes his master when titian was painting his cesare borgia is it not conceivable that his imagination may have been positively inflamed by the contrast between the man's physical beauty and moral guilt and have unconsciously heightened the contrast by making the pride and passion lower more darkly the superb brilliancy of the eyes burn more radiantly than might have been seen in real life mr froude has evidently been often thus ensnared by his own special gift there is hardly anything in our modern literature more powerful picturesque and dramatic than his portrait of mary queen of scots it stands out and glows and darkens with all the glare and gloom of a living form now in sun and now in shadow it is almost as perfect and impressive as titian but no reasonable person can doubt that it is a dramatic and not an historical study without going into any controversy as to disputed facts even admitting for the sake of argument that mary was as guilty as mr froude would make her it is impossible to believe that the woman he has painted is the mary stuart of history and of life no doubt his mary is now a reality for us we are distinctly acquainted with her we can see her and follow her movements but she is a fable for all that the poets and painters have made the form of the mermaid not one whit less clear and distinct for us than the figure of a living woman if any of us were to see a painting of a mermaid with scales upon her neck or with feet he would resent it and laugh at it as an inaccuracy just as if he saw some gross anatomical blunder in a picture of a man or woman mr froude has created a mary stuart as art and legend have created a mermaid he has made her one of the most imposing figures in our modern history 
to which indeed she is an important addition. His Queen Elizabeth is almost equally remarkable as a work of art. His Henry VIII stands not quite so high, and far lower comes his Caesar, which is absurdly untrue as a portrait, and is not strong enough as a romantic picture. Mr. Froude's personal integrity and candor are constantly coming into contradiction with his artistic temptation. But the portrait goes on all the same. He is too honest and candid to conceal or pervert any fact that he knows. He tells everything frankly, but continues his picture in his own way. It may be that some rather darksome vices suddenly prove their existence in the character of the person whom Mr. Froude had chosen to illustrate the brightness and glory of human nature. Mr. Froude is not abashed. He deliberately states the facts, shows how in his, or in that instance, truth did tell shocking lies, mercy ordered several massacres, and virtue fell into the ways of Messalina. But he still maintains that his pictures are portraits of truth, mercy, and virtue. A lover of art, according to a story in the memoirs of Canova, was so struck with admiration of that sculptor's Venus that he begged to be allowed to see the model. The artist gratified him, but so far from beholding a very goddess of beauty in the flesh, he only saw a well-made, rather coarse-looking woman. The sculptor, seeing his disappointment, explained to him that the hand and eye of the artist, as they work, can gradually and almost imperceptibly change the model from that which it is in the flesh to that which it ought to be in the marble. This is the process which is always going on with Mr. Froude whenever he is at work upon some model in which, for love or hate, he takes unusual interest. Therefore the historian is constantly involving himself in a welter of inconsistencies and errors. Mr. Froude's errors go far to justify the dull and literal old historians of the school of dry as dust, who, if they never quickened an event into life, never, on the other hand, deluded the mind with phantoms. The chroniclers of mere facts and dates, the old almanac-makers, are weary creatures, but one finds it hard to condemn them to mere contempt when he sees how the vivid genius of a man like Mr. Froude can lead him astray. Mr. Froude's finest artistic gift becomes his greatest defect for the special work he undertakes to do. A scholar, a man of high imagination, a man likewise of patient labor, he is above all things a romantic portrait painter, and the spell by which his works allure us is the spell of the magician, not the calm power of the teacher. End of section 48